Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have taken place here in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But he had, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Skipping to verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, AARP magazine recently asked their readers to tell a short story, and they did it in a unique way. They said, we want you to tell a story, but only use six words to tell it. So this is what they came up with. Here was one example. Forgot brisket in trunk, car stunk. That's just, okay, so you get the idea. That's just how it's going to go. So, so hang in there. Just six words. Here we go. Second one, divorced husband, then he won lottery. See, okay, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, right. Oh, great. Sure, that's how it works. Here's another one. Lent friend money, believed him, waiting. Okay, that tells a good story right there. Skipped college, aged, learned from life. Like that? Yeah. I like this one. I should have danced all night. Like that, like that. <laughs> and then the last one, which is always my favorite one, located my childhood sweetheart, shouldn't have. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> now, how would you like to have your life summed up in words? What would you say? How would you put the reality of your life in just a few words? How does your life become real in that? Well, Jesus had something to say about that and something that we need to hear this special Mother's Day. In our scripture for today, we see that in the act of communion, Jesus is recognized. 
In the living of Christian community, Jesus becomes real to us. And it raises a fundamental theological question for us. Where does life become real for you? Who becomes real to you when life has let you down? You need help. I need help. Whose story, above all else, truly helps us when the rug is pulled out from under us? So to look for answers, I want to talk about appearance stories. And I want to go back to the Gospel of Mark and take a look at it. You remember that the Gospel of Mark was the first Gospel that was written. And we have, at the very end of his Gospel, no appearance stories. Not one. The book just ends with Jesus' death. And by the time we get to Luke, some 30 years later, we have this story, which suggests that appearance stories developed over time. Well, Brandon Scott from Phillips Theological Seminary, in his new book, The Trouble with Resurrection, deals with this developing story. He says the facts that scholars know about the end of Jesus' life are this. One, that the Romans killed Jesus. And two, that there was no body. Okay? Number one is clear because the Jews did not kill Jesus. For whatever you want to say about Judas turning him over to the Jewish authorities, finally, when all is said and done, the Romans were the one who nailed Jesus to the cross and hung him to die. But there were many stories surrounding the death of Jesus that his body was stolen. By who? The disciples? That would explain the missing body, and how convenient. They wanted a martyr for all the awful deeds that Rome had done. What better way to build up a following than to uh, steal his body? But what if the Romans stole his body? After all, they were the ones guarding the tomb. It makes sense that they stole his body, and then they could charge the Jewish leaders with any story they wanted to make up, such as the Jews stole his body. Both ideas are plausible. But Brandon Scott says that the interesting thing was that following Jesus' death, the community of believers, the disciples and beyond, continued to experience healings, common meals, parables, and the kingdom of God. The same things that they had experienced before Jesus died. Yes, Rome killed God's prophet. Rome crushed him. And yet, Scott says, God's empire was still present. So the only conclusion is, God must have acted through resurrection. The parables that Jesus shared imagined a world in which a Samaritan comes to the aid of a Jew in the ditch, in which a rich man throws a banquet for the destitute, in which the empire of God resembles not the empire of Rome, but something more like a mustard plant, a weed that grows so big that it infiltrates everywhere in the soil. Despite Rome's victory, 
when the group of disciples came together again and again and again, they discovered the reimagined world of God's empire in their midst. It was still present. God acted and brought Jesus to life in, and home with him in heaven while remaining here through the Holy Spirit to help us to be in that wafer and juice when we kneel at this altar, to be in our hearts when we do acts of compassion and justice, to be with us as we courageously challenge the world. In other words, Jesus is real. Because all that Jesus stands for, we can participate in by doing the things disciples do. One of the scholars that came to Tulsa a couple of years ago through Phillips Theological Seminary was Hal Tausig. And I was delighted to see Hal come because Hal was a part of my doctoral program. He is pastor of Chestnut Hill United Methodist Church in Philadelphia and a visiting professor at Dr. Tankersley Seminary, New York uh, Union Theological Seminary, professor of New Testament there. He wrote a book called In the Beginning Was the Meal. The Meal. It's a fascinating book about social experimentation and early Christian identity. And he told us that he and several others had done archaeological digs and discovered compelling evidence that early Christianity formed around the meal. They uncovered homes, and in those homes were these dining rooms where people would gather together and recline. If you remember, they reclined when they ate, uh, usually on their left uh, elbow, which would be a problem for me because I'm right-handed, so they had to eat with their right hand. And Tausig said that the number of persons who could gather around a table only numbered about nine or 11 persons in the homes that they looked at. So think about that. A small group of people. They actually laid down, his group, when they were doing the digs, they laid down. They said, we want to count. And sure enough, nine of his uh, crew, and then in other homes, 11. So just a small group. Now, what they learned was that in those communities, Christianity was practiced in those homes through what we would call today supper clubs. Okay? A supper club. And these supper clubs, yes, brought together people from all walks of life to a home for a few hours each month or maybe twice a month, whatever could be worked out, and you had women sitting with men at the table. That didn't happen outside that. You had slaves sitting at the table with masters. You had Jews sitting with Gentiles. You had people who, in the real world, might not ever associate. But through the church, they not only associated, they ate together, laughed together, were treated as equals around that table. They discovered that the leader of one of these supper clubs 
was an actual slave. This was fascinating. An actual slave who for a brief time each month got to lay aside the fact that he was a slave and participate in the promises of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was the one who organized things and put it all together. During the time that they were together for church, they would hear readings of the faith. I mean, they wouldn't be the gospel stories because those would not have been written by then. Some readings, maybe Paul's letters at that time, maybe some others. But Tausig said this is how early Christianity developed in small groups in the home. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, it, it was just, a, it was a social experiment to bring together all of these persons. That's what you could call the church, a social experiment. These classes of people all brought into one space. For a brief moment, they could feel what the kingdom of God was meant to be in the eating of a meal together, in the living out of the rituals and the practices of the church. Jesus became real to all of those persons. So how has Jesus become real for you lately? Is he just a figure of history? Or is he as real as your best friend? One of my favorite authors is Frederick Beekner. Do you know that name? Frederick Beekner. He's one of the best uh, writers in, in spiritual books and religious books and devotionals uh, that's out there. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister who has written so many classic books in the last 60 years. But he also writes novels. I, I think all of them are, are works of art. Uh, anyway, he will be 85 years old this year. And the other day, my friend Ray Hickman, who's the executive director at Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, Ray gave me a book of his called Wishful Thinking, A Seeker's ABC. And in that book of Beekner's are words from our religious dictionary, the slang words that we in the church know. And one of the words that stood out for me was mysticism. Now, don't have a cow about that word, please. Because most people hear mysticism and they think immediately magic and tarot card readings, but that's not it at all. In fact, there's a whole Christian tradition of Christian mystics out there that you need to read and get, get caught up on. Listen to what Beekner says about this word. Mysticism, he says, is where religions start. Moses with his flocks in Midian, Jesus up to his knees in the waters of Jordan, each of them responding to something. Religions start with a sense of awe, or as Robert Frost said, poems do with a lump in the throat, or with a bush going up in flames, a dove coming out of the sky. I have seen things, said Catholic mystic and philosopher Thomas Aquinas. I have seen things that make all my writings seem like straw. Most people, including you, have also seen another reality. And through some moment of beauty or pain, some sudden turning of their lives, most people have caught glimmers of, of at least 
what the saints are blinded by. Only then, unlike the saints, he says, they tend to go on as though nothing has happened. Then he finishes with this line. We are all more mystics than we choose to let on. Even to ourselves, life is complicated enough as it is. Isn't that a great statement? We are all more mystics than we choose to let on. And Matthew Fox says this about mysticism. He calls it our deep experience of unity. With nature, with friends, with truth, with God. It is a work of the right brain more than the left brain. It is the essence of authentic religion, and it is about experiencing, not intellectualizing. So as Jesus becomes real to us in the living of our lives, in the practicing of the rituals that make up our lives, this is a call for us to go deep into the experience of life, into your marriage, your work, your music. Music. Oh, let me get our doctors of music up here to talk about it. Joel and Susan. Susan, could you stand up for just a minute, please? Yes. Here's Susan Pansera right there. You, all, you never get to see her. How about that? Right there. You two are PhDs in music, so you've got to know this. Do you ever work on a piece of music where, where your heart and soul somehow become a part of it? That somehow what the composer is trying to convey, it matches up with your spirit. Does that ever happen to you all? I'm so glad they're answering yes. I really... <laughs> If they'd said no, I wouldn't have known where to go uh, after that. Uh, thank you. Very good. All right, choir, I'm looking at you now. Do you ever sing a song that lifts your spirits? It may not be every song that you sing each and every Sunday, but aren't there songs that somehow go deeper, that makes God real to you in a way that other songs just don't? Look at those nodding heads. Okay, your turn. Okay, your turn. Now, aren't there songs out there that you just cannot get out of your head, you know, that you sing? It's as though that through the music, our spirits are lifted, maybe just for fun, but I'm of the opinion that God's essence and energy are at the core of all of our experiences. That's mysticism. That's the beginning of religion. That's life. That's love. That's real. Phoebe Snow died two weeks ago. Do you know Phoebe Snow? She was a songwriter, singer, sang back in the early 70s, and she wrote a song uh, at the beginning of her career which became a huge hit. It was called Poetry Man. Phoebe Snow was born in New York, and raised in a household filled with music of Delta blues, Broadway show tunes, Dixieland jazz, and classical folk music. And while performing in New York in 1972, she was scouted by a record executive who signed her for her first album, just called Phoebe Snow. 
And that album became one of the most acclaimed debut album recordings of all time. And it included Poetry Man, which rose to a top five single uh, in 1973 and earned her a Grammy Award nomination for Best New Artist. But just as quickly as Phoebe Snow came on the scene and had that incredible voice, she actually kind of went off the scene and you lost track of her because she had a baby. But there was a problem with the birth. Phoebe said on the television interview that I watched that her daughter was asphyxiated during the delivery, leaving her brain damaged and her hearing and her sight destroyed. She was told to leave little Valerie Rose to an institution that she wouldn't live another year. But Phoebe would have nothing to do with that. Being a mother to that little girl was the most important thing she could do, she felt. And she took Valerie Rose home to care for her. She gave to her daughter a life that actually helped Phoebe understand what life was all about. Not about the glitz and the glamour of being out on the road singing all over the country, but about the real things of motherhood, love, joy, and caring. She was told that Valerie Rose probably wouldn't live longer than 12 months and that she wouldn't ever recognize Phoebe or be able to communicate with her at all. Well, she actually lived 31 years. And Phoebe Snow said that Valerie Rose was the greatest gift God ever gave to her. Four years ago, Valerie Rose finally died. And her good friend, Linda Ronstadt, the Linda Ronstadt, yes, the singer, asked Phoebe, what are you going to do now, Phoebe? Well, I'll tell you, you've got to sing. You have to sing. Sing your sadness. Sing your gratitude. And so she did. She hit the road. And she enjoyed a resurgence in her career. And she dedicated every performance to little Valerie Rose. Phoebe, about a year ago, got a brain tumor, uh, a stroke. Uh, excuse me, it was a stroke and a hemorrhage, and she died two weeks ago. But Phoebe Snow was a mother who loved her daughter with all of her strength and all of her might. Love becomes real to us when there's someone in our lives that expresses that love in a way we've never experienced. Love can be the most wonderful experience of your entire life. One expression of that is, is with someone who loves you deeply. Another expression of that is the love of a mother or of a father. And another expression of that is God's love through Jesus. A love that's so real that it motivates us to be more than we have ever been. 
Jesus is a person as real as our best friend, but who communicates to us through the living of our lives, through the rituals of our lives, through the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs of everyday life. Yes, Jesus continues to appear to us today. That's the good news of Easter. He just appears with a different face on. He appears in a way that we don't expect. So live, he says to you and me, live, and God will become more real to you. Amen.